Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. Here are your hosts, John from Global Recon and Mike from Fieldcraft LLC, giving you the matter of facts. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks, and I'm on with Mike Glover of Fieldcraft, who's the show's co-host. Uh, this episode, we're going to talk about some specialties of uh, Army Special Forces, uh, which is FID, which stands for Foreign Internal Defense and Unconventional Warfare. And we have Ronan Tactics, uh, two from Ronan Tactics, who is on, and he'll be. we'll play the interview for that in a few minutes. And I'm going to hand it over to Mike, and um, Mike's going to talk a little bit about that. What's up, everybody? It's Mike from Philcraft. Hey, uh, we're going to have two on here in a couple minutes, but just wanted to highlight the conversation about one of Special Forces, U.S. Army Special Forces' most important missions, which is called Foreign Internal Defense. Uh, FID, or Foreign Internal Defense, goes back really to the, the 40s and 50s, when the OSS was um, stood up and basically the Green Berets and the, and the uh, CIA were born out of those, those entities. But Wait, the, and, and what's the OSS for people? The Office know? of Strategic Services. So the OSS is a clandestine organization of a myriad of operators and local national uh, operators that were part of uh, an organization that the military stood up under Lieutenant Colonel Bank, Aaron Bank. And they set up this organization to train paramilitary forces behind enemy lines and auxiliary elements outside of that to develop the underground, which eventually uh, helped with the sabotage, um, co- coercion, sub- subversion, and, and uh, disrupted the Nazis during during the war that that and these are things that the that we were doing prior, really to the uh, the the war in Central Europe kicking off. So when you look at OSS to the Green Berets and you look at it, its mission set and what it was born out of, it was really born out of a necessity to empower local nationals and host nation or indigenous elements to fight and you know utilize and leverage their capabilities and bi- help build their capacity to operate, which would only facilitate, obviously, our endeavors in, in whatever region we were in. So my experience with FID, um, you know, me, me and two both grew up in, in special forces. Um, him in the Philippines with uh, first special forces group and me and, and third special forces group, which uh, the first part of my career, we were, we were in Africa a lot, but ended up being mostly in, in Iraq. Uh, you have to, and I just mentioned this in a social media post on Instagram, you have to be a jack of all trades. And one of those is being able to sit down and break bread with the elders, build rapport, and be a uh, really a, a joint operator of, you know, a bilateral kind of operations where you're accepting the fact that, hey, you're training a, another unit to a standard, and it's not going to be your particular standard, but to be able to operate in those specific countries, you have to be able to work with people outside of your culture. And I know back in the day, when, in, like when the war was in my prime, um, 06, 07, um, 
nobody wanted to do for internal defense. Everybody wanted to do what's called unilateral operations. They wanted to kick in doors um, and kill bad guys with their buddies, with their American buddies. But we started to to realize as the war moved on that if you wanted to stay involved, if you wanted to be um, relevant in the missions as those unilateral operations and restrictions got put on to certain organizations, then you had to be able to train, assist, and advise these these counterparts. So we start special forces and other elements outside of special forces started adapting to that kind of model, including MARSOC, um, NAVSOF, uh, and other special operations elements within the military. So uh, it's not the sexiest sexiest of missions. And in the SIF, me and two did what's called CT-FID or counterterrorism FID, where you assist in the finding and fixing and finishing of the bad guys, but you do it all the way through. So it's not just a training mission. Um, originally, in the beginning of all this, you know, it, it was typically a training mission. But at some point, uh, we got involved and we were assisting those elements in direct action or special reconnaissance or involved mission sets. So it, was, it became like a joint operations kind of thing. So it's just important to highlight that mission set because a lot of people are turned off by that because they, they don't want to do anything uh, with other cultures or other militaries. And there's a lot of bad rep that that whole mission set gets. But honestly, it's, the, it's not the wave of the future. It is the future. And it's, in fact, the present. And that's how we're going to fight our wars in the future. You know, global pursuit is, cannot be fight unilaterally. It has to be fought with other um, nations and other partners to be able to win strategically and, and really defeat the enemy on the ground. You know, who knows the ground better than the, the men who uh, live and occupy that same terrain and ground. So look forward to this next uh, interview and uh, we'll pass it off to John. Hey, Mike, before we get into that interview, uh, can we answer a question that I got on an email? Are yeah, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. I thought we were going to do it again. Let's do it now. Okay, so this subject is National Guard Special Forces. Here's what the guy said. Hey, guys, big fan of the podcast. I just got off active duty a few months ago, and now I'm in the Guard in Southern California. I was an E5 infantry team leader on active duty, and now I've heard a little bit about the National Guard SF groups, and it's caught my interest. I'm just wondering if you guys have any experience or know anyone who has any insight into what it's like being on a National Guard ODA, what their op tempo is like and their training and all that type of stuff. Thanks in advance and thanks for the podcast you guys are putting out. It's good stuff. So excellent question. I, I get that question a lot on my social media and, and through emails. And it's a good point to highlight that uh, special operations or special forces has reserve components slash National Guard components across the United States, specifically to U.S. Army Special Forces outside of the active components, the five groups. You have two reserve groups, that is 19th Special Forces Group and 20th Special Forces Group. Uh, 19th is based mainly in the West, and, and 20th Special Forces Group is based mainly in the East. When I got off active duty as a team sergeant, my last duty position was a uh, team sergeant, and I transitioned into a National Guard unit in, in, in Texas where I became a team sergeant. So the first part of the question 
question is, you know, what's the experiences and, and, you know, how are those organizations? I get the question a lot, you know, do they, are they like, you know, somehow separate from the active components? So from my experience being a team sergeant in 19th group, I had a team and my team had all kinds of experiences. Some of them were new guys straight to SF some of them were older guys who had been around a long time. Um, but the overall benefit to the National Guard component is that all these men, whether they were prior service military before or they just came off the streets and were only in the National Guard, they have all this life experience and they have full-time jobs. Typically, like for example, my team, I had a police officer who was on my team. He's a 20-year um, veteran of the San Antonio Police Department. And Rob was his name, great, great guy, and had all the connections to be able to to leverage different training venues. Um, uh, I mean, we even did a couple ride-alongs with with him and had all that experience and all that talent to be able to better the team. Um, And all these guys had similar backgrounds. I had a guy who was a former uh, fifth group SIF guy who was a sniper, but I mean he was getting his education and his his uh, master's degree in engineering. Well, he was an eighteen Charlie, so he was a special special forces engineer. So on a daily basis, things that he was learning in the engineering uh, education that he was receiving, he was bringing it back to the team. And not only that, he was a you know he was a shooter, um, so he shot competitively uh, national rifle competitions. So he was bringing that to the team as well. So every time we got together for that one weekend a month, uh, they were pretty epic training events and venues. As far as the op tempo, the op tempo is actually pretty high and it's going to pick up. You know, I won't get into too much operational details or specifics of, of their rotations, but imagine that, you know, the five groups are already task saturated across the globe because they're in so many different areas of operation. That 19th and 20th group, because of their um, availability, are going to be pulled more and more, and you're going to see nothing but the op tempo increase. And when policy changes, it drives different intelligence uh, requirements, and then that leads to different operational needs. With that policy change, is going to come a lot of, uh, I think, 19th and 20th group filling filling a lot of gaps. The first uh, groups or first teams really to deploy in special forces in the global war on terror included special forces teams from 19th and 20th group. Um, the 19th and 20th special forces group, besides the fact that you know the benefits I just laid out um, are, you know, at the end of the day, you go back to your job at home, um, when you're activated, you're activated for potentially a year at a time. Now the, the benefit is the, the guys that you serve with the deployment cycles. Um, the one week in a month, uh, is seen as a benefit, but obviously there's some downfalls. The one downfall would be if you make a hundred thousand dollars a year and then you're an E five or E six in the army national guard and you get activated, you're going to take a pay loss. Um, but to me, service to the country, 
uh, service to special forces to the regiment in any capacity is better um, than no capacity at all. So there's going to there's going to come some sacrifice. Um, so yeah, good question. If there's any more specifics, you feel free to uh, email me or DM me on my uh, Instagram, which will be followed up at the end of the show. With that being said, now we're going to get into the interview we had with Two from Ronin Tactics. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm here with Two from Ronin Tactics. Hey, John. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, man. It was uh, it's great having you on. Uh, last The last episode that we did with you on uh, was pretty popular, and uh, a lot of people liked it. I enjoyed doing it. Uh, so for this episode, what kind of inspired me to think about this was I I read a book about a special forces team who went into Bolivia, you know, 50 years ago and trained up a Bolivian Ranger regiment, which then the Bolivian Rangers went after Che Guevara and uh, eventually captured him. And then the the government of Bolivia uh, executed Che. And so that was, I guess that's like a textbook uh, foreign internal defense mission and you know that was 50 years ago and i i know that's still a specialty of the green berets the army special forces so two is a 20 year veteran of the army special forces so he's going to talk about some of these uh specialties of the of the unit yeah absolutely i, I you know i'll be more than happy to to talk about it um you know unconventional warfare you know it was uh we, you know, we dealt with unconventional warfare for a very long time. In fact, this this country uh, was found on insurgency. You know, we we're a bunch of rebels, and uh, we we fought against a superior military force uh, unconventionally. Uh, at its time, we we fought against a, a military force that had established uh, tactics, and we we were able to think outside the box and and uh, and fought them. Uh, you know, in in foreign soil, on their foreign soil. But when you talk about foreign domestic defense or unconventional warfare, what I want to do is clarify both. Uh, You know, the history behind unconventional warfare, John F. Kennedy started unconventional war. You know, he he found an uh, an issue that we had in Vietnam uh, against unconventional warfare, the, the guerrilla warfare. And he formed two special operations units to combat uh the insurgency. One was the U.S. Navy SEALs, and the second was the U.S. Army Green Berets. Um, the Green Berets traditionally has uh, continued to pursue that mission of uh, um, unconventional warfare. So the, the the main difference between the two um, foreign domestic defense, which is FID, and unconventional warfare is FID is more that you know, we we go into a country, uh, special forces guys go into a country, and we link up with an already established military force that's trying to fight like a, a a terrorist organization or a rebel force that's trying to overthrow the government. You know, we we link up with them through State Department, uh, either fund them, and then we we train, assist, and advise, and and by with and through we combat the insurgency. The the unconventional warfare side at house, it's, it's a little bit more uh, unique. It's uh, we are the rebel force. You know, we we go into the country and link up with the 
the rebel force that is it's uh, being oppressed by the the government at its time. And we link up with the rebel force. We train them. We mobilize them. You know, we we take them into combat by with and through. And uh, and then you know, there's and then we de- demobilize them. So that's that's the difference between the two. Yeah. So I know throughout history, I mean, we're talking thousands of years. Uh, the the concept of unconventional warfare has been around and has been in practice. Uh, and I think the most famous um, author or philosopher, you can call him, is uh, Sun Tzu from China. And he pretty much, you know, he wrote the author, the, he's the author of the book, The Art of War, which is all about unconventional warfare. And I, I think that book has been studied uh, worldwide and by military tacticians and even business leaders and things like that to try and figure out how they can apply those same rules of unconventional warfare to their business. So as far as the U.S. history goes, uh, I know in, in World War II, the predecessor to the CIA, which was the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, they would send small teams into France, into Germany, and and they would set up resistance movements. And, and through these operations, what they did was they would sabotage supply lines and, and take out communication grids and things like that. Can you talk about some of that type of warfare? Yeah, so, you know, it's 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 guerrilla tactics. You know, these guerrilla tactics been around for, for a while. You know, guerrilla tactics is an unconventional way of, of fighting. It's hit and run, uh, cutting off lines of communication, you know, training resistance. Uh, and I'll I, I tell you, John, you know, through my 22 and a half years, I, it, it took me a while, you know, to, to understand, really, truly understand unconventional warfare. And, you know, during my, my time in the service, uh, because of the, the war um, and how long this war was in multiple fronts, I, I was able to conduct um, symmetrical warfare. I, I'd done full spectrum war. And I, I tell you, man, FID is is one of my joys in life. Like, you know, we can go into a country and we have, we, we can drop bombs and we can kill as many of these savages as possible. And we could put bullets down and kick in doors. And in the end, when we leave, what is there, man? You know, it's, they have to live in their country. Right. And, and I feel like the reason why I understand this is because I was born uh, in a war torn country. I, I was born uh, when the Americans left um, my native country, Vietnam, and the North Vietnamese came over and ripped apart everything that was humane, you know, and, and, and killed uh, my family and, and anybody who was educated, drug out of the streets. And, and I tell you, that, that was the beginning stages of my life. And later on in life, um, being indoctrinated to warfare at the level I was, uh, I, it was not just one front. I, I can name multiple fronts where I saw the savagery of war. Now, the the art of unconventional war, FID, you're you're going in a country where there's no hope, uh, especially UW type operations. You're going in a country where they have no hope. They're being so you know oppressed by their government, and you're giving them hope. 
and you're fighting next to him because you believe and you you know what's 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 amazing with um you become a symbol of freedom you know and you become um a leader and 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 when you leave what do you leave with you know you you leave with um you're giving them a part of you and they're going to continue to fight on because they believed in you and your cause. And that's what's so unique about FID. You can kick in doors and kill as many of those enemies as possible. Once you leave, it's going to go back to the way it was if they didn't believe in you in the first place. Look at Iraq. You know, look at all the countries we've been in and left. And when you go in, you truly make a difference. That's how you combat that's how you combat terrorism, insurgency. You have to change their mindset. And I'm telling you, it's it's almost impossible with some of the cultures. But I've been into countries where we have given hope when there was no hope. And I tell you, man, that's that's one of the most amazing things that you will ever experience. So in the Middle East, and in particular in Iraq, the situation isn't me versus you, the winner uh, takes all. It's the enemy blends in with the local population. They conduct assassinations. They basically bully in some areas and they run propaganda campaigns in order to win over the support of the local population. So from the outside looking in, it's clear that a conventional approach wouldn't would probably not be the most effective way to handle an unconventional war. So can you talk about some of your experiences either in Iraq or anywhere where you have experienced fighting an unconventional war? Uh, you know, John, it is what it is, man, you know, and I, I hate to get into politics. You know, I support my country and my God and they put us in for uh, to combat terrorism and we did it the best we could, and we follow our orders. You know, I don't want to get into the politics side of the house, but I, I could tell you some experience, man. Like, you know, um, let's let's just talk about the Philippines. You know, uh, going into the southern region of the Philippines in Basilan, uh, Zamboanga, into uh, you know Indonesia. You know, they they Abu Sayyaf was going in and committing, you know, uh, rape, bombings, kidnappings, prostitution, drugs, you name it. And, you know, when I was so young back then, I was 23. And, you know, to tell you that I understood conventional warfare and FID type of operation, I, uh, I'm not, I'm going to lie to you. I didn't. All I wanted to do was go in and kick indoors and kill these savages and that's not what it's all about. Later on, I found out that going into these tribal regions, you know, and living with the villages and living with the locals and eating their food and understanding their hardships, that's when you truly understand where they come from. That's when you truly understand their motives. And, you know, I even put myself in the enemy's shoes. You know, if you don't think there's two sides to every story and, you know, the enemy faces uh, their hardships, um, yeah, they're savages for a reason, you know, I mean, the continent of Africa, they had to murder 
members of their family when they're 12 years old, you know, just to survive. So there's a harsh, harsh dose of the truth, you know, and, and the reality hits you. And, um, I tell you, Iraq, man, like one of the first things I seen when I entered Iraq was, you know, I thought I was going in and liberating a country. And when I, we were driving um, our tack vehicles down the road to, to conduct a direct action op, and these kids and families were waving their shoes at us. And um, really, they were showing the bottom of their feet. And anybody who knows their, their culture, that's an ultimate insult. And at the time, I was pissed off, you know, because here I am fighting a war and they're waving this at me, not grateful. But, you know, later on, as I matured, think about it, man. You know, we dropped bombs in our countries and killed. Um, it is what it is, you know, and, and there's I understand war. And um, it's just unfortunate that it happened. And when you put guys like us on the ground, we're going to find you and we're going to kill you. That's it. Uh, that's interesting to hear. It's interesting that as you got older, you start, you understood why they felt a certain type of way towards American soldiers. So Western militaries are bound by what is called the rules of engagement, the ROEs. And it's basically fighting a war with rules. Now, everybody knows that the enemy has no regard towards rules of engagement. There's no regard uh, about how many innocent people get killed. It really doesn't matter to them as long as they get to inflict casualties. And often they plan attacks in such a way to get the most casualties uh, possible. You know, when when you think about warfare, right, you know, you think about like World War II, there was a defined two sides in uniform, you know, fighting and you could see the line in the sand. And, you know, even, you know, Saudi Arabia, you know, and a lot of these wars, there's the fine military force. But you think about this global war, um, you know, they're in civilian clothes, they're hiding behind civilians, they're acting like a, an allied force on the ground, but yet they're they're um they're putting bombs underneath our vehicles, marking off our our uh G bases, you know, our outstations. Um it's a truly unconventional warfare. And when when you think about unconventional warfare, there's no rules, man. You know, Sanju talks about there's no rules to war and you know, do I act, uh, you know, do I follow what my God and country tells me to do? Absolutely. I have morals and I can't do some of the things that these savages do. But I tell you what, I will meet them on the battlefield and we will hunt them down and kill them, whatever the means. But when people tell me, hey, man, there's a Geneva Convention, you're wrong. There is no Geneva Convention when it comes to this. It's a different type of warfare. It's unconventional war. In a conversation that we had prior to this, you told me that you would prefer to go into a country and train the host nation's forces and teach them how to think about warfare and how to defend themselves versus just kicking in the door and shooting the enemy, uh, which you have years of experience doing. Can you expand on that a little bit? 
you know, I rather label it like this. Um, I rather give than take and, you know, kicking in somebody's door and, and finding them and hunting them. And we did it for so long in so many places. And I'll tell you, it, you become almost numb to it. But in the end, you know, I, I am human and, you know, I do see the aftermath of war. And I, I, I tell you, man, like I read a give to a country and give them a way out and give them hope, you know, before you put guys like us in, because, when we find them, that's it. We have our orders and it's a, uh, you know, it's like a light switch. When you switch it, you can't stop it. So when you're prepping to go overseas, um, how do you plan for that level of uncertainty that comes with the unconventional warfare, which is the, the wars that the United States is fighting today? Well, you know, they, our selection process is, is, is pretty long. In fact, you know, the Green Berets are the longest uh, qualification course in the whole army. You know, it's, it's, it's very intense. And one of the things we look for is uh, an intellectual level. We want a guy who's able to think that can perform, physically perform at an athlete's level. So with the, with the intellectual side, what I usually do is first intel. Intelligence drives everything. How can you affect something if you don't know? How do you can you change when you don't understand? You first need to get the intelligence and then really dive into the intelligence, you know, really dive into the economics, uh, the health, uh, the infrastructure, logistics, you know, the people. You know, how did they get where they are and why are they oppressed? Not just the the friendly side, but the enemy side. Really put yourself in their shoes and understand their motives, understand their history, understand their tactics and how they communicate and how to get resupplied and where and who are the sympathizers. I mean, it really goes into a lot of intel and interconnecting details and, you know, I really dissect uh, the, the the infrastructure of the country, even the the weather data of the time that my teams are going to be in, uh, where their satellites orbit in in comparison where I am. Um, you know, I mean, w- you, you name it. So then we go into all right. Now we make contact with some foreign entity, you know. And usually, if it's a FID mission, we it's a military force. It's established military force, so we have, you know, some embassy or State Department entity out there that we can get um, to get us intelligence or interagency to get us our our intel we need. And then I start my mission planning. Mission planning goes into very detail, often all the intel that I collected. And I come with different courses of action and contingency plans. And, you know, I mean, what happens if the, you know, the military force turns on us? What, what happens if there's a civil war that breaks out and we need to evacuate the teams? What happens if we need, we, we get another mission to push into a different country? So you got to plan on all this. And then we go into infiltration phase, infill, how we're going to get in, you know, is, is a covert mean or overt means infiltration into that country? And we make initial contact 
um, usually with the leadership, um, and then the the ground troop level, the soldiers itself, and that that's the bread and butter. That's where you build your rapport. And and I, I tell you, man, like you know, you got to understand their culture. You know, you can't get upset because they don't like you. You know, like for me to be an Asian American, a lot of these foreign cultures don't accept my native race. They they're still stuck in that racism. You know, I have to work over that. I have to understand that because I'm here for a mission. I'm here to do whatever the United States is asking me to do. And I have to put my emotions aside and build this rapport. But, you know, it's so funny. In the end, they usually love you and they usually will jump in front of the bullet to save your life because you showed them and you proved to them. So, you, you, you know, you have to put that. That a little bit of your emotion aside and uh, you build rapport and then you go into training phase. So whatever you're training, usually I, I have an objective that I'm going to hit. I have a, a U.S. interest that was a guidance that was given to me in in-state and I'm going to work that host nation towards that objective uh, benign to the host nation sometimes. And, uh, and then we go into a validation phase. Validation is when I usually validate if they're able to execute this mission, this problem to the T. And then once I note it and confirm they can do it, usually by whiffing through, we lead them into combat and together, uh, we conduct the operation. So it's almost, um, you know, it, it, why I love this mission is it's it's hard, it's complicated, and um, that's why we went to special forces because you know we want to be able to solve issues and be the ambassador uh, for our country. And uh, and I tell you, once you change the title of war with some kind of military force, it's amazing. You know, you really understand how. Well, the United States special operations guys are trained. We're really trained in the art of warfare, and uh, it's a great thing to see. Yeah, and <clears throat> I know that uh, elements of the Army Special Forces trained up the Iraqi counterterrorism forces, and we we had uh, Amen Ogana on our second episode, who was a reporter for Vice News, who was embedded with the ICTF. So he was watching, he was there when they were battling against uh, ISIS. And from what Eamon told us, the the ICTF, and these guys are trained by American Special Forces, they pretty much just on, on their own, you know, a couple of hundred guys, less than 400 maybe, held back the uh, the advances of ISIS uh, just through their training. and And they held ISIS back so we know that the Iraqi military, the conventional military, fled and didn't fight, and they, you know, they left their weapons behind. But when they did that, the Iraqi counterterrorism force they had to act in part as a conventional military force. So they were manning checkpoints, um, you know, sitting on battle lines for a year straight, uh, which is is conventional and and now they're fighting as conventional soldiers but i think that's just a testament to their training and and to them and to the iraqi counterterrorism force soldiers themselves and it just shows that 
you know, with the right training, a couple of hundred guys can make a huge difference. Absolutely. You know, you know how you can t- always tell a professional force. You can always tell uh, the cool guy attitude goes away. You know, you're going to do whatever needs to be done. If, if it's manning a gate, you know, if it's, if it's conducting direct action missions, uh, you, you name it, it's, it's whatever your country needs at its time, man. And, you know, these guys didn't get stuck on, they were the premier counterterrorist unit, you know, the, you know, Mike was, you know, one of my friends and he was training uh, the commando force. And, and and that's what I'm talking about is their way of thinking. Uh, their, you know, their, their selfless service that, um, that the, the, you know, B-2-3 was teaching them that time. It, it, it bled off even when they left, you know, and these Iraqi commandos were able to step up. And, and do what needs to be done. And, um, and that's why they were, you know, successful against ISIS, you know, and although I didn't work with these guys, I was more of the, the direct action realm. I did see what these guys did and how they affected the battlefield. And, I, and I'll tell you, man, they, they did amazing things and they were truly feared, uh, by, you know, ISIS and, um, uh, and the, the terrorist cells were fighting at the time um, on a battlefield. It's amazing. Eamon Ogana, who the Vice News reporter, he was saying, because he spent a, a number of uh, months in Iraq, and he was saying that the, the Iraqi counterterrorism force, they're kind of like folk heroes in Iraq. has a lot of secretarian violence, a lot of uh, division amongst some eth- different ethnic groups and different religious sects of Islam. So you got the Sunnis, you got the Shias, and you got the Kurds in the north, and they're all fighting. But the, the this ICTF, the Iraqi Counterterrorism Force, was a mixture of all of these different ethnicities and, and different religious beliefs. And I think that's what really made them special, is, is they were, you know, the Iraqi people, and, and, and they were dedicated to their country. Absolutely. I mean, it, and I'll tell you, you know, um, you know, the the Shiites and Sunnis and I mean, and different tribals uh, um, that we, we we train and mobilize in the past. I mean, they have years and centuries uh, of conflict, and they're able to come together um, through guidance, um, you know, humanity. Uh, and, and, and come together to fight a, a greater evil. And, you know, I, I've seen it in, in multiple different fronts, you know, and, and you know, Libya uh, against, um, you know, the, the Zintans and Warshifanas. And, you know, you, you have these tribal regions and uh, militia groups and that's being oppressed so long. And, and they're willing to come together to fight that common cause. And under your guidance. And, and like I said, you know, these Iraqi commandos became a symbol, um, a symbol of fear, you know, uh, that, you know, the ISIS feared these guys. And that's what, you know, as Americans, we came in, we became a symbol of hope and guidance and leadership. And, you know, and that's how you truly win a war. 
you don't win a war by going in and kicking in doors, dropping bombs. Yeah, there's a time and place for it. But truly ask yourself, what remains once you leave? Who's going to pick up the pieces and help them develop their countries? And that's why, you know, the Green Berets are so effective. They're, they're going to stay and they're going to see you through and they're going to help you. So, too, how do you how can you train someone for that uncertainty, for that unknown and, you know, for that not knowing what's going to be, but still going in and effectively uh, handling the situation? You know, that's that's the thing, John. That's why our, our pipeline is so long, you know, and, and it encompasses so much. You know, because first you got to train the basics, right? You got to be a soldier. You got to be able to move, shoot, you know, shoot, move, and communicate effectively. You got to be able to operate in diverse uh, conditions, in in multifacets, and in every continent you can think of, in every terrain. And you know, there's different special operations units now that that is conducting uh, FID and, and UW. You know, the U.S. Navy SEALs, um, the MARSOC. Uh, Marines stood up the Raiders, um, you know, even even certain aspects of the uh, 75th Ranger Regiment is is starting to conduct um, FID operations because that's the future, man. We, we know this. Uh, we can't sustain our presence there forever. So w- with that said, you know, the pipeline is long and it starts off with the basics. You have to have a lethal application. Why are you going in? You know, so you have to train the lethality side of special operations. The special forces guys have to be lethal. And we train in demolition, small arms, um, you know, you know, ordnance, um, dropping ordnance into an area. You know, you, you train patrolling, you know, all the basics, ranger school, textbook stuff. And you, so you train in the textbook stuff. So you know how the textbook is and you know how we used to conduct, well, textbook-wise, how we conduct warfare. And you learn how warfare was conducted in the past. And then you start going into, um, you know, history and intercommunications and, on, uh, you know, understanding cultures and economics and, and structures like that, you know. Start understanding, you know, other than war stuff, you know, understanding how to dissect intelligence, and, you know, our final phase is, is really all the different jobs, the MOSs, um, you know, they split in phase two and they go out and they, they conduct like the medics do their, their, their MOS and the, um, the Bravos, you know, weapons, light weapons and, you know, you name it, demolitions. So, you know, we kind of branch away from each other and then we come back and we come back together for the unconventional phase. And each one of us are trained, cross-trained a lot of things, but we are experts in, in our individual field. So together collectively as a, an ODA, a team, we are able to dissect an issue. They're going to give us a country X with a problem and we're able to dive into the economics, the issues, the history, the logistics. And we set up everything off of their infrastructure. And usually it's, it's going to be the hardest uh, mission, which is unconventional warfare. You're training a rebel force, a guerrilla force to overthrow an existing government. 
and you're going to go in and you're going to link up with the rebel force. But first, you got to gain their rapport and then you got to train and mobilize and then conduct small type of confidence missions, um, you know, confidence operations, you know, hitting small targets, building their confidence and eventually, you know, nicking away at that big military force and building fear in the hearts of the existing government and then eventually overthrowing it. A lot of the Army Special Forces pipeline training is teaching you the basics of soldiering, how to shoot, how to move, how to communicate. And then you go on to your specialty. But outside of the specialty is a lot of what you're learning, the fundamentals of the Green Berets, is a lot of that done in the classroom. Yeah. So, you know, like, of course, you know, when you when you're trying to learn about uh, the culture, economics, the, uh, you know, the infrastructure, uh, it's basically diving into whatever country you're you're studying. You know, you're going to get assigned a country. You're going to learn that country. And it's really to see as a candidate how fast you can dissect an issue, a problem. You know, as a senior uh, special forces member, I'm going to see how the junior members are able to quickly identify issues and solve the issues, you know, and 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 quickly come up with a solution because we want to be able to, you know, problem solve, you know, and and um, and change the tide of war at a moment's notice on the battlefield, you know, because things don't go right. You know, you have a. You have a plan, but once you hit the ground, things change. And we want to be able to see if you can manage that, if you can handle the stress. Because if you don't think that we send guys in, you know, maybe one or two guys at a time, you're wrong. You know, we, we have sent guys in, just two guys in, to to link up with a, a foreign entity, uh, a militia group that's gunned. To arm to the teeth, and you're going in with just a pistol on your hip as ambassador to the United States to try to unify different militia groups to overthrow existing government. It gets real, really quick. Right, and I, I'm sure that's like a, a very dangerous part of the mission because you you can easily, you know, get kidnapped or something like that, and you're and like you said, you're you're really outgunned. But I, I think for the group that you're meeting, it shows really good faith, and that probably makes things a little bit easier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, usually we have, you know, we we have uh, agency uh, counterparts on the ground that was able to, you know, linked up with certain resistance, and we we utilize them a lot of times to to get us where we need to go. Uh, you know, and, and and we're trained on you know the act of uh, you know escape and resistance and stuff like that. We are, like I said, our pipeline continues, and that's just the actions on. You know, we haven't even talked about uh, you know advanced means of infiltration in in that phase. You know, when it comes to amphibious or uh, halo type of operations, you know, and that's just the covert means, and then the the overt means of infiltration. You know, and you got to be a master at, at, at pretty much a lot of things because your life depends on it. For a younger guy going in, what would you recommend? Uh, I know that th there's a program for guys to come in off the street and go straight into the Special Forces pipeline. But also I know traditionally 
guys who were in special forces were typically in an infantry unit or something in the military for a few years before they went in. Right. You know, when, when I first entered special forces, I was 21 years old. There, there was in, in 97, there was no such thing as a special forces, baby 18 X-ray program. Uh, they had that program in Vietnam and they deactivated it and then, you know, reinstated it, you know, later on. Uh, but I never had that luxury. If I did, I, I probably would have went straight special forces. But I, I tell you, everything kind of played out for me because I went, um, amphibious reconnaissance, um, company, the, the, the Lurs guys. And I was, I learned the act of reconnaissance. I learned, um, patrolling and the basic uh infantry tactics so if if you're asking me um i mean i i think you should learn the basics so you know yeah in the pipeline you will learn the basics but i mean really you think about how fast we're thrown at you do you really master the basics if you never employed it um you know and the rangers are are a great great Infantry, you know, they're the best, you know, when it comes to the light strike uh, lethal force. And, you know, in infantry units, they learn the art of patrolling, uh, basic CQB. So it's a good uh, advancement, you know, if, if, if that's the route you want to go, it's going to be a Green Beret. It's a good advancement. Yeah, so on the last episode, we had on Travis Osborne, who is a, a 20-year Army veteran, longtime special forces veteran who served with Mike and him and Mike were basically saying that that's what they, they tell guys. And I know that's what Travis did where he was, a, he was in the Ranger regiment and then he went on to special forces. I, I think is that kind of common in, uh, in special forces to see like a lot of former Rangers there? Absolutely. I mean, Rangers are the, the tip of the spear. Um, they're, they're, you know, I, I, I work with the Rangers majority of my career in my, you know, in USASOC, and they are without doubt um, one of the most lethal force out there. When when I knew the Rangers were out there um, providing uh, perimeter security or hitting a different target set near me, I, I knew that uh, we were good. You know, there's no doubt about it. And, and also that on Team SIF. And there's only certain entities out there that, that are really at that level. You know, and the Rangers, uh, they're, you know, why not? Why wouldn't you go to one of the best organizations to start off and, you know, and and staying with the Rangers or or moving on to, you know, being coming to Green Bay? That's what you want. You know, it's just understand it's different missions. Right. So, you, you know, the Rangers, uh, we they're like our Navy SEALs, you know, direct action, hard charging, uh, physically fit young studs. Uh, Green Berets are more of the thinkers, you know, because our 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 um, mission set was is unconventional. We have to be able to dissect issues, and we go in very small teams. We don't go in with a platoon or a company size. We go in with ODA or less, um, maybe sometimes six guys, sometimes four, sometimes twelve. You know, so you have to be on it, and you have to do your part. All right, so, too, I just want to thank you for coming on, man. It was uh, very informal. Uh, I hope the listeners can take away from this, and especially the, the younger guys who are looking to get into special forces, special operations. It kind of gives them some perspective and might change uh, their decisions and, and guide them a little better. So I just want to thank you for coming on and sharing some of your experiences.
Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure. And, um, you know, thanks for, for having me back on. Yeah, man, we got to get you on in the future. Absolutely, man. I'll be more than happy to come back on. And, uh, you know, like I said, thanks again for having me. All right, great interview with uh, Two from Ronin Tactics. Two's got a lot of experience in foreign internal defense. Again, like I said before, that's a mission set that's not the sexiest mission set in the world, but it's it's very important in the realm of special operations. And for all those guys that are out there and want to be part of special operations, just know that that mission set as it sets is one of the most important, if not the most important uh, hard skill and mission categories that special operations does today. So thanks, thanks to two uh, from Ronin Tactics. Uh, moving on, we'll talk a little bit about this weekend. This weekend on the 20th, we had our third ops course, which is Observe, Prepare, and Survive, which is the ops course that I run in uh, uh, I own California with Lynn from Philcraft. Uh, this course was a great course. We had CEOs from gaming company. We had uh, uh, a couple guys from Apple, and we had a couple firefighters in our course. Great course. Uh, went really well. I, I don't want to spoil the course for anybody, but if you go on my website at philcraftsurvival.com, you'll be able to read the, the uh, course summary. But in essence, it's a course that highlights specific uh, things that you need to do during a survival or preparedness uh, catastrophe. It gives you some little bit of psychology, a little uh, training uh, methodology, and then we, we go into a couple scenarios. And it's, it's real fun and real exciting. I know our next course is March 12th, and we just put out that uh, uh, timeline, and the courses are available. There's six slots available for that course. And then this Monday, we actually just released our Minimalist Philcraft Survival Kit. That's out. So far, we got good feedback. We've, we've sold a lot of them so far, so we appreciate the support. If you go on our website and our store, we're also uh, dealers and vendors and wholesalers and retailers and everything else for all these companies that are involved with Philcraft that, that deal in the realm of survival and preparedness. And that includes Gerber Tactical, uh, Adventure Kits, Adventure Medical Kits, uh, North American Rescue, uh, Rats, uh, a whole bunch of uh, good companies that are doing a lot of good things. Um, so with that being said, I'll pass it to John for the uh, outro. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's good stuff. Uh, that you know, the, the kit looks looks pretty good. And I know for everyone who's doing survival, I know the angle that you're you're teaching at is unique. And I think it's important for people to understand that mindset, which is what you're very big on. So we're gonna close it out for this episode. You can find Two Lamb from Ronin's Tactics on Instagram at Ronin Tactics. His website is ronintactics.com, and his Facebook is Ronin Tactics. Mike's website is fieldcraftsurvival.com. His Instagram is soft survivor, that's SOF survivor, and his Facebook is fieldcraft LLC. My website is globalrecon.net. My Instagram is igrecon, and my Facebook is fbrecon. So we'll see you guys in a couple of days. Peace. <laughs>